everybody. I'm going to be reading from Colossians 3. If I can find it. There it is. Okay. Colossians 3, 12. And then going all the way to verse 1 of chapter 4. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as chosen God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Awesome. Thanks, Will. Well, let me start by just saying hey, because there's a whole bunch of you guys who have only been here like one or two times. So it's awesome to meet some of you guys. We're playing. Some of you guys just came in. Good to see you. Um, it's, I was kind of laughing when multiple of you guys were saying you're bringing friends, because today we're talking about marriage. So it's quite an interesting one to come in on today, but we'll explain uh, how it fits in with Colossians as we go through, which we've been studying. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text uh, for today. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for um, your word. Thank you for Colossians and just the way we've got to understand the superiority and supremacy of Christ, how your son Christ, he is God. He is um, bringing a kingdom um, that is so much better than this world or anything this world has to offer, um, how he is reconciling everything um, towards this perfect kingdom, um, how he's fixing everything, and you've started by uh, fixing us, Lord, fixing our hearts by revealing your son Christ, restoring right relationship with you, and helping us be expectant of this kingdom. And uh, as we're expectant of you bringing this better kingdom, Lord, we're so thankful that you've already transformed us and explained how we are to live now um, and how marriage and family are part of this plan, Lord, that you have good gifts you've provided for us um, to walk in. You've given us kingdom clothes that we might put on, that we might honor you, and we might experience how amazing it is to be a Christian. Just help us to understand and learn from your word that we may continue to walk with Christ and we may continue to explain um, and present the joy of Christ uh, to this world that so desperately needs you. Thank you for this time, Lord, and please help us be attentive, energetic, um, and absolutely enthralled with how good your word is for us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. 
I don't know right now um, how many of you guys think you're going to remember homework assignments that you have now, like 10 or 15 years in the future. I don't think you probably will based on how much um, you guys expressed to me how much you don't like your homework. But believe it or not, uh, 10 or 15-ish years ago, I was somewhere around grade 8, and I still remember a project I did in grade 8. Uh, that project started because my grade 8 teacher um, wanted us to learn about the Middle Ages. And she wanted us to learn not just information about the Middle Ages, but to compare life back then to life now so we could learn something about, about life right now. Um, and she wanted to do that in a very engaging way. She knew that we really needed to learn about that period if we got in, if we somehow felt like we were living during that time. So what she did was she got... Oh, it sounded like I was getting emotional over it. <laughs> uh, what she, it's just, this is a very emotional time. Uh, what she did was she got a hat, and she put pieces of paper in the hat and handed them out. And uh, when, she, uh, when you picked out a piece of paper, it had a role of someone who really existed during the Middle Ages. And your job was to learn about what was life was like for your role, which was an occupation or job, um, and then you basically came dressed up as that person to class and had to teach everybody else what your role was like. And that way, everybody learned something unique, but everyone came together and learned everything uh, about the Middle Ages when all the pieces were put together. There were all sorts of occupations. There was king, squire, knight, court jester, peasant, farmer, blacksmith, carpenter, leather worker. Um, but I still to this day think I got the best one, uh, which was falconer. I got to learn all about what it was like uh, to train birds to kill animals for the king. That's what I spent two months uh, of my life in grade eight learning. And I don't want to go on about falcon facts. I'm sure I can't remember most of them. But I remember that was such an amazing way to end up learning about that time period. And the reason I still remember it is because I realize now looking at this text that we'll be in today, that having a role or understanding your role helps to understand the world that you live in. And in the same way that my teacher kind of understood that back when I was in grade eight, Paul, I think, understands that in our text today, that being a Christian and living as a part in Christ's kingdom becomes real when you see how it actually affects you in daily life. You see what it looks like when all of that knowledge, all that truth about being a kingdom citizen actually comes home and you start walking in it. And that's why Paul, in our Colossians study, begins to look at daily life, because he wants this truth to be real in your life. And the most important part of daily life, not only for the Colossians back then, but for us today, really goes back to the family. What Paul ends up starting talking about is uh, what the family should look like. In the ancient world, in Paul's day, family was very, very important. If you had order in the home, it was not only important for your survival, it was also very important for you to have respect and to be recognized in that world. Even philosophers made it a typical subject that they would teach on because everyone understood how important the family was. And if you looked at a family in that context and you looked at a Christian family, it actually wouldn't look incredibly different from the culture. But as the Colossians are learning about this new kingdom and this new perspective they have because they've been transformed by Christ and they can see the things above, Christians are starting to wonder, Paul knows, if the family should look different 
if they should look different from the world. Christians started wondering if being a kingdom citizen changed daily life and changed their role in their homes. Now, we've already learned as we've been going through Colossians that through Christ, he has reestablished our entire identity. Life radically changes when you become a Christian because your most important identity is being united with Christ. You're in Christ and you are a new creation. And that makes that identity so significant that every other identity becomes secondary or insignificant. We actually learned about this in Colossians 3.11 when Paul said, there is not Greek or Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all in all. Your most important identifiable characteristic is that you are united with Christ. And it's easy to say that, and it sounds really nice about how equal we all seem in Christ, but the question is, how does that change in my daily life? When I leave these doors or when I leave church on a Sunday morning, the question you are asking is, what does my life actually look like? And that means asking what the family looked like. Now, if your identity is in Christ, we should be asking, does my role in my family change? Through Christ, you are called not only to Christ, but you are also called to a church. And if the church is this new spiritual family, does that mean that my birth family or my responsibilities to my birth family, do those even matter anymore? Do I have the same job? Do I look the same in my job? Are my responsibilities still there? Does my role as a parent or a child or a husband or a wife, does it look different from the world? And if it does, how? And when Paul gets into this text today, he's going to start answering that question by looking at different roles one at a time and explaining what Christ's plan for you in that role is. Colossians is going to show us a pattern for what a Christian home is supposed to look like. And all of these roles aren't going to apply to you right now. Not only because some of these are gender specific, but some of them are just parts of life that we haven't reached yet. And we're going to learn about that even today. But the reality that Paul is really waking us up to is that this is important for you to not only recognize what a Christian family should look like, but also to understand what your future families should look like. Christ has a good plan for the good gifts he's given us. So if he has given us the gift of family, then he has given you a good pattern so that you can live that to the fullest. And as you do, as you follow Christ's pattern for being a family member, you're going to be able to give him glory as the rightful king of a better kingdom, which is what we're all about as Christians. You're going to be able to experience the joy and benefits of living in a righteous relationship with God. And you're going to be able to let others see how God's plan is better, how his coming kingdom is so much greater, and it is so much better than this world. And the other thing that's amazing about this text is that Paul really wants us to walk in the kingdom daily. And there's nothing more daily than your relationships with your family, and there's also nothing maybe more difficult than your relationships with your family. Paul knows that this is important because living in a family is difficult. One pastor said it this way. He said, nothing is more difficult than living in a family where the virtues of compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and professions of love are tested daily. Now, he just mentioned everything that we learned in chapter 3, verse 12 and 14. And that seems to be even more difficult when you might have unique commands based on the role that God has given you. 
And Paul cares about that and wants us to thrive in that, and he wants us to grow up into these relationships and thrive there also. So even if you're not in this particular situation yet, it's important to know so that you may experience the joy of Christ through joyful obedience to his design. And that's what we're getting into today with six different roles that Paul mentions that exist today in a sense as well. The six roles are wives, husbands, children, parents, bondservants, which we're going to explain is kind of like workers, and masters, which for our purposes will be similar to bosses. Six relationships that Paul explains, and the first one he's going to explain is marriage. He's going to explain what Christ's design for wives and husbands in marriage is. If you want one sentence that you could walk away with into small group to explain the whole sermon today, it's this. Christ gives us his commands for marriage that honor him and reveal the glories of his kingdom in daily life. That's what this whole time together is going to be about. Christ's commands for marriage that honor him and reveal the glories of his kingdom in daily life. That's what we're getting into today. And the one thing that we're getting into today is going to be marriage, because the family begins with marriage. God is going to give many of you guys in the future new families, and that's going to start uh, in your marriages. And since Colossians is all about Christ ruling over everything, and how Christ's rule makes everything right and reconciled, Paul knows that he has to address marriage. Now, he does do it very briefly. These are only two verses that we actually get into, but he addresses it because it's going to have one of the highest levels of significance in people's real daily lives. And even though he only goes into two verses, we want to try and have the whole testimony of the Bible get in on this because it's so important for you guys to understand what marriage looks like. So this is basically what we're going to do. We're going to talk about wives, we're going to talk about husbands, and then we're going to talk about why it matters. We're going to talk about wives, we're going to talk about husbands, then we're going to talk about why it matters. That's basically what we're doing today. And before we get into the specificity of wives and husbands, I just want to start by taking you all the way back to Genesis to explain where marriage came from. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Genesis 2. We're going to be here for about five minutes or so. You could sum up in three words, uh, three things that God explains to us that are relevant to understand marriage. Three words that could... Um, sum up basically Genesis teaching on marriage. And these three words are people, plan, and partnership. People, plan, and partnership. Genesis explains that people are valuable, equally valuable. God created man and woman in Genesis chapter 1, 26, in his image. So whether you are a man or a woman, you have equal value in God's eyes because you are created in his image. Equal worth, equal responsibility, and equally loved by God. That is all people. But secondly, people have a plan. God gave them a plan for what life was all about. And Genesis 1.28 says the plan was to have dominion over the earth. God gave Adam and Eve a partnership in which they would come together and they would represent God's rule over the earth by ruling for his glory. And his image would spread throughout the whole earth. Now, obviously, that ended up getting broken. And a new plan, which culminates in the gospel, ends up coming about. But that idea has always been in the Bible that it is all about God and his glory filling the earth. So you have people, you have God's plan for them. And then he explained how that plan is going to happen, which is through partnership. 
partnership, which is literally marriage. And Genesis, after chapter one in the creation of the whole world, God explains this partnership, this marriage, starting in Genesis chapter 2, 18. Adam has been created at this point. He's been given this mandate. And then it says in Genesis 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In one verse, God explains why a wife for Adam was created because it was not good that one person should go about the earth and fulfill this plan of God, but that two people were needed. God's glory would be understood in this idea of partnership. And we see a lot of that just based on how he describes the wife. Number one, he describes her as a helper. That idea is literally someone who rescues or saves. And then the literal idea in a marriage is that um, that partner, that helper, is making up for something that is lacking in another person. Um, that same word was used to describe a situation in which a military was fighting a war and they needed more people, so they would call in troops that were needed to help. That was the same word here for helper. Then he says that helper, Eve, who comes to Adam is fit for him. And some of your Bibles might say suitable. That means she was a person who completed the picture God was creating. She literally complemented him. That idea has the idea of pottery being glued back together. There was a missing piece to God's plan, and he filled it by creating Eve. And the reason she was created in the first place is because he explains it is not good for man to be alone. God said that the best good, the best plan he could create was humans being together in community. And one of the special ways that that begins is through marriage. And that means marriage is a big deal. So even from the very beginning, the second chapter of the Bible, marriage is supposed to do something very significant. And that significance happens when it's according to God's plan. So Paul in Colossians, back in Colossians 3 now, he actually explains one command for a wife, one command for a woman, and that's going to basically sum up God's plan uh, for marriage. So now back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul gives his first command to the wives, which is this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Here's the first question. This might seem tricky. Who is Paul talking to in that command? Somebody tell me. Thank you, my wife. <laughs> Paul is talking to wives. And that's actually very significant because in the ancient worlds, husbands commanded their wives. Wives were considered second-class citizens because fathers had absolute authority over their household. So it was always a husband talking to his wife. But Paul himself talks directly to wives because he knows way back in Genesis 2 and all throughout the entirety of creation Wives are equal in worth. He knows that there are wives who are saved by Christ, that they are united with Christ, they have equal worth before Christ, and so he knows that they also have an ethical responsibility to follow God's plan. He treats them as equals by talking directly to them. And what he tells them is how they fit into this plan of marriage. And the word he uses is submission. Submission. That word too, uh, submission is actually two words in the Greek which means to be uh, put under or arranged under the order of another person. Now, some people see that literal translation, those two literal words, and they say that that means that a wife is worthless. Not worthless as in not having any value, but having less significance. 
And so therefore they say that submission is basically just obedience. Basically, since she is second to the husband, it's more important that she just listens to whatever a husband tells her. Now, that actually makes submission to mean obedience, and obedience is a different word. And we know it's a different word because just two verses later, if you look at the child's relationship to their father and a bondservant's relationship to their master, he uses the word obedience. So um, submission and obedience are different in some way. So Paul actually explains what's the most important way to understand what submission actually means, and he says it is fitting in the Lord. If we understand what the Lord has explained about submission, then we're going to understand what we do if we are a wife. I think a really good place to start here is to read you 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 5. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, 3 and 5. Wives, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Paul here is not making a statement that it's uh, unimportant or wrong uh, to care about your physical beauty, but what he's talking about is that the beauty of a wife starts from the inside. The inside is what's really important. Putting on Christ-like qualities is important, and specifically for a wife, these are qualities of preference. Now, every Christian puts on kingdom qualities. We learn that in Colossians 3, 12 to 14, but specifically a wife is said to put on certain, a certain spirit or attitude of what he says is gentleness or quietness, not literally, but an idea of preferencing. A wife cares about preferring her husband. In Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Paul expands on that by explaining to older women they should train younger women. And a significant way that older women train younger women is telling them to love their husbands and children and to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. Submission, according to Titus 2, is important because Christian wives love their husbands, love their home, love their God, and they love God's word. Because of all of those things, and because the Bible teaches this, it drives them to do something, to prefer their husband. It drives them to be a kind of selfless person who cares about what God says, and so they follow this command. And Paul really explains this in the letter that's always seen as complementary to Colossians, which is Ephesians chapter 5. This is what Ephesians chapter 5 22 and 24 says, and this kind of helps cement the idea of what submission actually means. It says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That really gets us at the foundational idea of submission, which is this. Submission means a wife following the leadership of her husband. That's probably the most simple explanation of submission. It is following the leadership of her husband. Another pastor said it this way, submission is a disposition to follow the husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight in you taking initiative. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and that you lead with love. And we get a lot of that from this idea of the husband being a head. If the husband is the head, it means that God gave a wife her husband as a gift to her to help direct and protect her life. 
And the way that wives honor the gift of a husband is by honoring their husband. And by honoring their husband, they honor Christ. Now, Paul explains that's not just about families functioning well. That's what the ancient world talked about families for. They just wanted to make sure that there was order amidst the chaos of life. That's not the main thing Paul is concerned about. Paul is concerned about how Christian marriage can be a picture of something greater. And the picture that it gives is the relationship between Christ and his church. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, the church loves and submits to Christ. The church is united in love to Christ, and therefore the church submits itself to the leadership of Christ. And the beauty of that relationship is seen as a small picture of that when wives submit to their husbands. Now, even as we talk about that, the biggest question that people normally ask is that if submission means that, does that mean a wife just obeys everything a husband tells her to? That's the question most people have anyway. Does submission include obedience? Now, we already said, because we see the word obedience in a separate section only two verses later, submission and obedience are different. Obedience doesn't have the same kind of idea of partnership that is present in marriage. The idea of following someone's leadership and giving preferences to them is different than simply hearing their commands and doing their will. Marriage is more of a partnership than that. Now, marriage might mean in certain instances there is compliance because it is a partnership, but it includes communication, it includes input from the wife, concerns and considerations are being made between both parties, and there is a recognition that marriage is two people and not one. So leadership and submission is different from obedience because of the partnership that marriage has been designed to be. And here's a big reason why there's a bit of a difference. Because a husband's leadership is not absolute. A husband himself, whether he's a believer of not, does, or not, does not have the right to simply ask for things to happen and his wife to be his servant. A godly husband is going to be easier to follow his lead because he looks more like Christ. If he's looking like Christ and we're Christians, then naturally it's going to be easier for a wife to follow him. But an ungodly husband is going to be difficult there are many people probably in this period and multiple periods after, the Bible talks about them, where people were um, introduced into marriages, sometimes betrothed, sometimes they weren't actually in love, there was parents organizing marriages, and then one of the partners would get saved. And the question is, do I submit to a husband who's ungodly? Well, the idea is that in God's plan, there is a kind of leadership that the husband gives, but remember the key in verse 18, which is leadership is based on what is fitting to the Lord. And that creates a kind of order in marriage because Paul doesn't say submit as is fitting in your husband or fitting to the culture. He says submit as is fitting in the Lord. That means a wife wants to follow the husband's lead wherever she can and show an attitude and desire and preference for him to lead like Christ, but she never follows him into sin, ever. That is where the leadership of a husband becomes obviously subordinate to the ultimate leadership of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2.24, at the very end of that section, it says that wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But keep in mind, that's a little bit different from the idea of anything. They're not submitting to their husbands in anything. The idea is that a wife should submit to her husband in everything that she can, 
but not in anything that goes against God. The king of the castle is not the king of the home because a husband isn't even the king of his own home. Leadership ultimately, and a husband who wants to lead honestly, and we'll look at that in a sec, is someone who cares about Christ first. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 2 adds something interesting, I think, to this discussion a little bit. It explains the intention that goes behind a wife's submission. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The situation for Peter in First Peter is that there are women who have been saved and they're suddenly in this marriage to someone who's not a Christian. And the question they have is, do I obey this person? Do I submit to him? And Peter, in a sense, says yes, he doesn't say you absolutely submit to this person. You don't just follow their lead, especially when they call you into sin. But what Peter is really getting at is asking Christian wives, listen, you married this person at one point. You have a responsibility to them. You probably cared about them at one point. The question is, what do you want most for them? And any Christian wife would answer the same thing. What I want most is that this person, my husband, would know Christ. That is what I want more than anything else in the world. And so Peter gives advice exactly according to what a wife's desire for her unchristian husband would be, which is that if you submit to him, if you follow their leadership, if you put on these qualities of preference, if they see your respectful and pure conduct, you will give them a picture of Christ. You will show them how much better Christ is than anyone in this world, even myself, and you will show how his kingdom is so much better than this world. Now again, God is not putting wives in a situation in which they have to be obedient in sin. He is not saying wives are supposed to stay in abusive relationships for their, them or their children. What Paul is trying to explain, what Peter and other New Testament authors are trying to explain, is that God has a good design for marriage when it functions appropriately. And that means a wife's desire to see her husband grow in the Lord results in her placing her preferences before her husband and asking that he would take initiative in leading their family. That is what Paul is talking about. Now, it's kind of hard to explain only in the 10 minutes we've had, so if you have questions or want to talk, but summing up, the idea of submission is this. Submission is a wife's partnership with her husband by following his leadership as fits the Lord to illustrate the church's union to Christ and to point him to God. I'll say that one more time. Submission is a wife's partnership with her husband by following his leadership as fits the Lord to illustrate the church's union to Christ and to point him to God. So that's submission. So now let's look at verse 19, which is addressing husbands, the other half of marriage. Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One thing that was interesting to learn in studying this passage is that almost all pastors and commentators agree on something. Between the two commands, between wives and husbands, the husbands definitely have the more difficult command. And if you actually look in this section, there's actually two commands that are given here to husbands. And the first command is that they are to love their wives. One pastor said that most in the ancient world did not expect a marriage to be grounded in love. We take it for granted these days that we live in a culture in which people get married because they love each other or they are in love with each other. 
at least at some point, usually. That was absolutely not taken for granted in this culture. I just read a book, a historical fiction, that is based on this particular time period, and even the most moral and good characters in the book never ever talk about marriage being anything other than a legal arrangement between two people to basically get respect in the culture. That's what marriage was. And Paul responds to that the way Christ would call him to respond as a teacher in the church. And he tells husbands to love their wives. There's an interesting situation in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is talking about the same idea. Paul starts thinking about the beginning of, of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. He starts thinking of the last thing that Moses writes in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And as Paul writes that down, he starts thinking to himself, this mystery is profound. That's what he writes. This mystery is profound. He's thinking marriage is deep and complicated, and it's a bit of a mystery. And it absolutely is. I have only been married for uh, just over a year, and I can tell you, even in over a year, marriage is complicated, it is messy, it is awesome and amazing, and it is also very difficult. And it's definitely not difficult because of my wife. It's difficult because I'm a sinner, and she's a sinner, and we live together. And that can make life difficult because of this idea of wanting everything to be the way I want it to be. So the question is, if marriage is supposed to be awesome, but it can be difficult, why does marriage exist? Well, Paul explains. The reason marriage exists is because it gives a picture of Christ to the church. Now, in the same way that a wife's obedience is supposed to give a picture of the church lovingly submitting to the leadership of Christ, the man, the husband, also has a prerogative. And his prerogative is to be like Christ. As Paul explains that in Ephesians chapter 5, he explains at least three things that men ought to be as they lead their wives in marriage. And they all start with an S, so I'll say them very quickly. The first one is sacrifice. A husband's life is all about sacrifice. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband is to show Christ to his wife by sacrificing to her. His life is for her. He will do anything to show his love for her, just like Christ showed his love for us when he died on the cross for our sins. And that drives him to perform any um, any action that will make it obvious to his wife that he loves her more than anything else. That's the first sacrifice. Number two is sanctification. He cares most about his wife growing more holy. Paul says, a husband loves his wife so that he might sanctify her, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's because a husband is concerned with his wife growing more and more like Christ every day and that she becomes more separated from the sin that threatens her soul. The husband's job is to help her be like Christ and not like himself. And so therefore he leads her towards joyful obedience to Christ and not to himself first so that she would focus on Christ's kingdom and loving and living for Christ as most important in her life. Sacrifice and sanctification. And the third is selflessness. Selflessness. Paul says, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it it. Sacrifice is an action, but selflessness is an attitude. 
an attitude a husband is supposed to have every single day of her life. Now, of course, a wife is supposed to have that too, but the summation of all of the actions, anything that a husband does, everything needs to come back to selflessness, that he would prefer her in everything that he can. A husband obviously loves himself, is what Paul is getting at here. He obviously cares about himself a lot, and he puts time and energy into the things he wants. So if he's married, his chief want should be for his wife, and therefore do everything for her possible. Another pastor said it this way, his job is to prioritize her as precious. Whatever makes her seem precious to him, whatever makes her content and trusting him that he loves her more than anything, that is the thing he's supposed to do, obviously unless it's sin. But unless it's not sin, he has to do everything to explain that his wife is his greatest investment and his loveliest joy, and she's to be treated that way. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 actually explains this in greater detail. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel and showing the wives that they are heirs with you according to the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's so much to talk about, but the one I want to highlight to you that's so interesting is that if a wife does not love, if a husband does not love his wife and does not show preference and understanding for her, then God won't hear his prayers. I seriously remember that like a couple times every week. God will not hear my prayers if I don't live in an understanding way with my wife and I don't honor her as precious before God. And that's why Paul mentions the second command, which I'll just say very briefly. He says, husbands cannot be harsh with his wife. That means that the husband cannot be bitter towards his wife and he can't make her bitter. The idea is that if a wife thinks of being married to her husband, she shouldn't go, it's awful. It's a bad taste in my mouth. That's the idea that Paul is getting at. One pastor said, don't call her honey and treat her like vinegar. I love that line. That's such a good line. And it's a good line because it's true. The idea of marriage as a gift is that it's sweet. It's something to enjoy. And a wife enjoys marriage as sweet because her husband is sweet to her. It gives her joy. It makes life easier. And it energizes her instead of tiring her out. The idea of having this command second, I think, is very significant in the fact, in this fact, a husband should never make it hard for his wife to submit to her. A wife should find submission most days easy if her husband is doing her job right. If a husband is doing his job right. Submission is her job and her sin before God is important, but a man is not commanded to make his wife submit to her a husband's job is to be in love and demonstrate love to his wife so that submission would be easy and joyful for her. If a husband loves his wife that way and a wife loves her husband that way, then the church and the world is going to see a picture of how amazing the love of Christ is, how amazing his plan for us is, and how amazing the kingdom that he's bringing will one day be. If we do this, we actually get a taste of how God's love is powerful and protecting of us. Husbands will be transformed so that they can do this, and wives likewise will be transformed to see the joy of this. And therefore, as they, as members of the church, come to the church and love this and live this way, the entire church starts fulfilling its plan according to God, which is to be called together in unity and to demonstrate joy in Christ. That's wives, that's husbands, and now let's briefly just look for a second why this is important. 
And I hope there's at least some things going off in your brain because the obvious question is, we're not married, most of us aren't married, why does this matter to us? That's a good question. Here's the first reason that basically all the other reasons come from. Because if marriage is a gift from God, you need to know the truth about it in a world and a culture that hates marriage. If it's a gift from God, you need to know how God designed it because this world and this culture hates marriage. Both of these commands are under attack in the world you guys now live in. Women are told that submission is wrong either because it's misinterpreted or exaggerated or because they are told that being a woman is all about independence and selfishness and exercising control. But just as much as people seem to talk about that being under, uh, under attack, the more that I look on any social media that somebody shows me, the more obvious it seems that husbands and their command to love their wives is equally under control. You hear words like toxic masculinity or sigma or simp. Yeah, I know some of the words. You hear some of those words, and all of them are just new ways to reinterpret husband to be all about themselves, to make men superior in some sense so that everything is about themselves. And both of those attacks have the exact same problem, which is that your culture hates the idea that you should live for someone else. They hate it. They hate the idea that marriage could somehow be about someone else's rights rather than God's rule for you to give your rights and your love to someone else as more significant than you are. Marriage means something totally different now. And we, including me, we live in a culture in which marriage is being reinterpreted so much every day that we start to forget what marriage actually looks like. Things like homosexuality, things like divorce that has no strings attached, things like normalizing abortion or ignoring abuse, all of those things seem so normal to us. And if we keep thinking that they're normal, they're gonna change the beauty of marriage. And that's why Paul talks about this, because family in God's kingdom is partnering to pursue the Lord. And that's how you are able to live in love for one another. And if God is gracious to you to let you get married and you live according to God's plan, the fake normalizing of marriage in this culture is gonna seem obvious to you. And you're going to explain even to those people the joy and the disobedience that is leading them towards a kingdom in which God will punish them for eternity. And we don't want that for people. You want to point out what true marriage is and you want to explain to people what marriage is not so you can lead them to the kingdom. That God can lead you through a bright, joyful, vibrant marriage into the kingdom. Because marriage done God's way is giving a picture of how much better Christ is and how much better his kingdom is. So what do you, as an unmarried person, learn from looking at marriage? Here's a, four very quick things that I think are helpful for you to do right now. If you could take this kind of teaching about marriage and live it right now, here's four things. Number one, prepare for marriage by accepting God's authority. Prepare for marriage by accepting God's authority. My guess is that many of you probably right now already want marriage. I know talking to a lot of you guys in high school that I know you want to be married someday. But you're not really going to know the goodness and grace of marriage if you don't understand the authority you're under now. That's going to be especially important in two weeks from now when we learn about children relating to parents. If you ignore the kind of authority that is above you now, 
you'll never understand how authority and preferences works in God's kingdom. And that means you need to be obedient to Christ now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 4 says this, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Marriage is all about giving yourself to another person. That's everything. And if you are not giving yourself to God, you will never give yourself to another person. Not really. The beauty of marriage is all in sacrificing whatever you can to say, you own me, my life is yours, my life is all about doing what God commands me to do for you. And that does not exist if you don't start doing that for Christ first. Christ is better than marriage because Christ designed marriage. He came before anything. Any gift that he gave us, Christ came first. So if you love Christ and want to serve him, you will be able to serve your spouse properly in marriage. So number one, prepare for marriage by accepting God's authority. The second kind of comes right after it. Number two, prepare for marriage by prioritizing people. In the same way that marriage won't be good now if you don't give yourself to God, it also won't be good if you haven't practiced giving yourselves to other people. Now, I understand that things like dating and friendships and all of these relationships are good, but you need to understand that all of your relationships, whether they're friendships or whether they're dating, it is all about them and not about you. If all of your relationships are based on imagining this person to be the way I want, then marriage is not going to go well for you. But if you practice now by literally looking at the people around you and loving them like Christ, you are practicing for loving your future spouse like Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that seems weird because I thought we talked about wives submitting to their husbands, and that's true. But what Paul is getting at is that everyone submits to someone. Every Christian submits to each other in some way, they put their preferences down before someone else because they care about them more than themselves. And if you practice that before you're married, you are setting yourself up for marriage to be awesome. Because marriage is awesome, but only if it's according to God's way. And if you don't understand that people's purposes are in God's eyes and not just how valuable they are to you, you're never going to get that. I was flipping today very quickly through a Calvin and Hobbes book. Raise your hand if you know what Calvin and Hobbes is. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. There are some gems in Calvin and Hobbes. I literally saw a very quick panel today, and it was Calvin arguing with this other girl who's a friend of his that they're, they're arguing about something really immaturely. And he walks away, and he talks to Hobbes, which is this stuffed tiger who comes to life. And he says, I think girls are like slugs. They probably serve some purpose, but it's hard to imagine what. <laughs> It's like brutal. But listen, that is only something an immature child would say, okay? Because he can only imagine that girls are useful if he knows their purpose, but that's because he thinks that their value comes from him. Everyone's value does not come by how valuable you think they are. They're made in God's image. They're valuable to him. So if you want to be married, you have to stop looking at other people like they could be someone to date, and you need to start by looking at them as a brother and sister in Christ. If you don't see them as that first, you will never, ever love them that way unless God is incredibly gracious to you. But if you start before you're looking for relationships with looking at someone as a soul bound for somewhere and someone who needs to know Christ, 
then you're starting to practice out what marriage is going to be according to God's command. Here's the third thing. Surround yourself with solid marriages. Surround yourself with solid marriages. There are a ton of awesome marriages around you. Your parents could be an example of marriage as much as you might not want to admit it. You guys might have family members. For any of you guys who go to our church, you're going to see awesome marriages around you and soak up everything that you can learn about being a Christian and being married from those people. Now, let me be clear. A solid marriage is not a perfect marriage. And you can't pretend it is because it doesn't exist. A solid marriage could be watching two Christians in a marriage argue with each other. A solid marriage could be two people who are trying to agree on something and having the most difficult time ever agreeing on it. But what makes it solid is if they're both dependent on the Lord first and their spouse second. If they are faithful to Christ and as a consequence they are trying and through their trying by God's power through the Holy Spirit they are growing, that is a marriage you should observe. Watch them fail, watch them fall apart, watch them be restored, watch them learn from it, watch them do better and grow, and you will explain how good God is in marriage, especially seeing the grace that we desperately need. There are situations that are awkward to be a part of. There are situations in which Christ's love overflows into marriage and, and just covers so much failure. But the reality is that God is surrounding you guys with awesome marriages, and you can see how people communicate, how they work through conflict, and how they care for others, how they partner towards the gospel, and those are marriages you should surround yourself with. And as you do, you will see godly patterns of marriage, and you will see how amazing marriage is. And here's the fourth one. Pray for God to protect marriage. Pray for God to protect marriage. Whether you're looking at the world and redefinitions of marriage or whether you're looking at your parents' marriage or whether you're thinking about your own future marriage, have marriage as something you pray about. When you see two people married, whether in conflict or they're awesome, help God to protect their marriage and pray that God would make their marriage even better than it already seems to be. Pray for my marriage. Pray for your leaders' marriages. Pray for your pastors' marriages because marriage is amazing and through marriages, the whole church ends up getting built up. God protects families, and it's part of the way he protects the church, so pray for marriages. Now, here's the very last thing I want to say. Those four things are prepare for marriage by accepting God's authority, prepare for marriage by prioritizing people, surround yourself with solid marriages, and pray for God's protection of marriage. Here's the last thing I want to say. When Christ comes to the home, he reveals a little piece of heaven through his plan for marriage. Because it's a gift above that tells you how good things are when Christ is ruling over them. And that might seem weird because some of you know that marriage isn't actually going to be in heaven. In Matthew, Christ actually explains that. But the reason marriage doesn't exist in heaven is because God is explaining to you how good union and partnership is now and we're gonna have the best taste of that ever in heaven because we'll be united fully with Christ. Christ will be there, we will walk with him, we will see him, we will learn from him for eternity. And you will understand how amazing that is if you understand and agree with God's purpose for marriage. Because marriage is all about selflessness and marriage is all about preference and serving someone else and no one has served us more than Christ has. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 and 11 says that Christ loved us so much and served us so well 
that he set aside his divinity, that he did not reveal his divinity, but he came to Christ, put on human flesh, and died for us. Not because we were precious. We were sinners. But Christ died for us because he loved us and wanted to demonstrate his glory over the universe by being gracious to us and reconciling with him forever. And when marriage works according to God's plan, we can see how everything is going to work according to God's plan when he comes again. That's God's plan for marriage. And next week, we're going to actually learn about God's plan for children and parents in the family. Let's pray. Father, we spent a lot of time in marriage. We just provided an opportunity for us to be taught I know there is so much information in this sermon and there is probably so much uh, repetition and, and so much that is already understood. But Lord, the reason we want to get into this is because we want you to be real in our daily lives. We want you to explain how good and gracious you are to us by telling us your plan for marriage. It's a good plan. It's a gift from you and we want to be righteous in it. We want as wives, as future wives, to submit to our husbands and as future husbands, we want to love our wives more than anything. Uh, we want to follow your pattern because your pattern is what's real. It's what's reality. This whole world was created by you and living in any way outside of you is just ridiculous. We do not want to be those people. We know reality is based on you. So please, Come to our lives, Lord. If we know you, re-energize our lives to love you and serve you more greatly. And if we do not know you, Lord, please let us fall at your feet and repent that we might be saved by your grace that you have freely given to us without cost through the blood of your son Christ. Please help us to be those people. Help us to retain this kind of information. But most importantly, Lord, let it transform our lives. Even though we're not married, we want to see how beautiful you are through your plan in marriage. So please help us to live as people who know your good kingdom plans so we might be in joyful expectation of your kingdom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. That was longer than I uh, intended to go for sure, and that was a pretty teaching-heavy sermon. So thank you for your grace to me um, in just being super attentive. I appreciate it. I hope it's helpful. If you have any questions about this stuff, please talk to me because this is a massive concept. Um, not like I know a lot.